Well, if you will, turn to Ruth chapter 3 in your Bibles. That'll be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Ruth together. And we just sang about that sure and steady anchor. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is our sure and steady hope. And I pray that if, if Christ is not your hope, if He's not the anchor of your soul this morning, that you'll come to better understand what that means as we walk through this book of Ruth together. If you've been with us, you know the ground we've covered. We've been looking at how we see that comparison of walking by faith instead of walking by sight and, and the struggle to walk by sight in the book of Ruth. Now We've seen how the book begins with Elimelech and his wife Naomi taking their boys from the promised land uh, to a wicked place, to, to Moab, to the enemies of God, uh, because they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in themselves. They were walking by sight. We've seen how Naomi continued to walk by sight after the death of her husband Elimelech and gave her sons over to be married to Moabite women, to, some, to women from this wicked land, something God has strictly forbidden. And then we've seen how in the loss of her husband and then her sons, how Naomi returns to the promised land, but she doesn't seem to be repentant or, or really have hope in the Lord. She's bitter. She's angry towards God because of how her life has turned out. She says that she went away full, but she has come back empty, and it is because the Lord is against her. And so we see this pattern in her life of walking by sight, of not trusting in the Lord. And then we see a contrast when we look to Ruth. Ruth places her trust in God on that journey back to Judah. As she walks by faith, she trusts the Lord in difficult situations. We saw last Lord's Day how she took steps of faith in this walk of faith. And we'll continue to see that walk of faith as we walk through Ruth chapter 3 today. Uh, we pick up at a point in the text where uh, Ruth has now met Boaz uh, out in the fields and, and, and now there seems to be a, a coming engagement that will happen between Boaz and Ruth. And we pick up at a point now where Naomi is trying to make sure these things happen. She's taking control of the situation. And so we're going to pick up here in Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and add a reverence for God's holy word, if you're able, if you would stand, as I read this text for us. And this is what God's word says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must, no go, not, excuse me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. If you would, pray with me. Father God, as we come to the study of Your Word, there are things here that seem very bizarre to us, very unusual. And much that we may not understand, and yet it comes in the context of a book that we can understand. Of a picture of Your covenant keeping faithfulness to Your people. Of Your provision for Your people. Of, of this Redeemer for Ruth and for her family. Lord, would You help us to see how these things connect us to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Would You help us to see how we might better understand today how we can walk by faith and not by sight? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are certain life events that are etched into our memory. Days, times, events that we always remember and and for me, one of those happened in the spring of 1995. Uh, it was at the spring formal at Meredith College because it was that evening that I asked Sandra K. Hagler uh, to be my wife. I remember it well. I had planned things out. I'd gotten the tuxedo. We were going out to a nice dinner. Uh, we were then going to this formal, and I had planned uh, in between there to... to have this opportunity to ask her to be my wife, but I wasn't sure on the location. And so that afternoon, I got together with my roommates and we kind of rode around campus. I knew we wanted to do it somewhere nearby there. And then we found what we felt was the, the perfect spot right there by our campus. It was the Raleigh Rose Garden. And as I walked through that garden, it was so picturesque. All the roses were in bloom. And there, as the sun just kind of beamed down, there was this one park bench. And I thought, that, that's the place. That's where I'm going to ask Sandy to be my wife. And so things went according to plan. I got on my tuxedo. She got on her fancy dress. We went out to eat. I came up with some type of excuse as to why we needed to go to this rose garden before we went to the formal. And so uh, we pulled in there. We walked down this path. But then things looked a little different at night than they did in the day. And most of the lights were not working in the park. And I noticed that at night, apparently, the Raleigh Rose Garden uh, became where all the homeless people would gather. <laughs> and there on that perfect park bench, someone had made their bed for the night. 
But I was determined, and so we found an empty bench uh, in a very dim-lit area, and we went over there, and I got on my knee, and I asked her to be my wife, and she said yes, and we got out of there as quickly as we could. And we still laugh about that story 24 years later. Maybe you've got something like that, an engagement story, something else, where, where you laugh about it, you think about it, it's very memorable to you. And it seems with engagement, there tend to be a lot of memorable stories. In fact, I was looking up this week some examples, and I came across a couple memorable engagement stories. One was a young man who got so tongue-tied and flustered, he literally didn't know what to say, and so he threw the engagement ring at his girlfriend and ran the other way. She ran after him and said, yes. And this other one, and I do not recommend this, uh, somewhat of a practical joker, I guess, this guy thought it was a good idea to fake his own death right down to a visitation in which he was laying in a coffin, and as his girlfriend stood there and wept, he sat up quickly and asked her to marry him, to which she punched him in his face and then said yes. Now, I'm guessing that wasn't the last time that guy got hit in the face. Those are memorable engagements. But, but none is quite as memorable of the one we've read about today in Ruth chapter 3. This story has been handed down through generations. It is a picture of the covenant faithfulness of God. And yet, it is a rather bizarre engagement story. This young widow goes to the threshing floor, waits until Boaz has fallen asleep, and uncovers his feet and lays there beside him. Well, what are we to make of that? What exactly does that mean? We're going to look at, that, look at that and look at the details as we look at this story in the context of how we've been viewing the book of Ruth. This command that we have in the Scripture to walk by faith and not by sight. This picture we have of Naomi and others who struggled to walk by faith intended to walk by sight. And at the same time of someone like Ruth who has put her faith in the one true God and is following after that God. How does this engagement story fit into that walk of faith? We're going to process through that as we walk through this passage. And, and we're going to walk through it with that question in mind. What does it look like to walk by faith? How do we walk by faith? How do we practically apply what we've been studying in the book of Ruth? And we'll start with the first point there in your outline. How do we walk by faith? Well, we begin with this instruction. Don't run ahead of God. Don't run ahead of God. What do I mean by that? Well, our, our tendency is to take control. Our tendency, our temptation is to be in charge. And so often what God's instruction to us is, is to be still. To wait on the Lord. To allow His providential plan to work itself out. God is sovereign and He is in control. And yet we are a people who struggle with that. We want to take the reins. We, we want to do something. And this is hard sometimes to process because what we just talked about last Lord's Day, how to walk by faith, we need to take steps of faith. We need to do things at times. But there's other times when we simply need to stop. The psalmist says in Psalm 46, we need to be still. And yet I assume, I would guess for most of us, we really struggle with that. We struggle with just stopping. We struggle with silence. We struggle with just waiting on the Lord. 
And I believe that's the exact struggle that we see here with Naomi. Again, Naomi has exhibited not trusting in the Lord, walking by sight. She's come back to the land of Judah saying, I'm bitter towards God. I just want to die. In fact, we talked last Lord's Day about how Naomi should have been out in those fields as well. But, but she's just sitting there being still. But not in a way where she's trusting in God. In a way where she's bitter towards God. But we start to see a change in her heart. Look back at chapter 2. After Ruth had gone out into the field and met Boaz, and she comes with all this grain, all this provision, Ruth sees that and blesses that, and then she starts to mention a Redeemer. You know, Boaz, he's a Redeemer. She comes back to that in chapter 3. He's our relative. He's a Redeemer. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that Naomi's beginning to take her focus off herself and her problems and beginning to look ahead and have some hope that, wait, God might do something here. You see, in the Hebrew culture, God had given laws of redemption. And these could be played out in many different ways. Uh, Essentially, what a redeemer was, was the closest relative, the closest male relative to the man who had died and left behind a widow. And that redeemer could do a number of things. In fact, we see in Numbers chapter 35, the redeemer takes the role of avenging the death of a family member. So we don't know how Elimelech died. We don't know how his sons died. But in a case where that was at the hands of someone else, the Redeemer had a responsibility that he could take to to avenge that death. We also see in Leviticus 25 that a Redeemer had the opportunity, even the responsibility, to buy back property that was sold to pay off debt to keep that property in the family. He had the opportunity to pay off the debts of someone who had actually become a slave, a servant because of their indebtedness. He could pay them out of their slavery and their indebtedness. And then there's this custom that is rather unusual for us today, but it entailed this. The the Redeemer could take on the responsibility of that relative who had died in regards to his wife. And so that Redeemer was a family member who could then step in and marry that widow in order to preserve the line of that man who had died and to preserve and protect his property. See, that property didn't pass to the widow. It passed to another man. And if there wasn't another son from the father, if there wasn't another brother, well, then that might go to someone outside of the family. And so the Redeemer had this unique opportunity. And what we see playing out here, they had the opportunity to step in and, and marry that widow to preserve that line and to preserve that property. Now, the Redeemers didn't have to do this. Uh, apparently, even based on what we see here, they could renounce that. They could decline that. But Naomi's mention of it means that, that her heart has changed a bit here. Her focus had been on herself. Her focus had been on, just let me go back and die. I'm bitter towards God. Now she's starting to look to the future. Now she's starting to have some hope. Now she's starting to consider, well, perhaps God still has a plan for my family. For our family tree. Perhaps there's hope to be found. And yet we see that Naomi struggles to trust God with that. There's this sense where she sees God at work and she's excited about that, but she still isn't willing to let go. She's, she's still not willing to trust in God entirely. She's still wanting to hold on to her own plans and her own ways. And we see that working out here in verses 1-5. through five. Now what's happened at this point is the harvest has ended. That means it's probably been about seven weeks from when Boaz first met Ruth in the field until this point now of the harvest ending. They would take the harvest, they would go to the threshing floor, they would separate the grain there from 
the surrounding husk around it. And so Naomi comes up with this plan. She takes matters into her own hands because apparently at this point, while Boaz and Ruth have probably had many interactions, there's no engagement. There's no proposal. There's no plans of marriage. So I tend to think about Naomi here a little bit like uh, if you're familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, Yinta, the matchmaker. And so you've got Naomi coming to Ruth probably day after day after day saying something along the lines of, Boaz, what did Boaz say today? Did you see Boaz? You're not getting any younger. You need to do something. You need to make this happen. And slowly telling Ruth, you need to make this work. You need to take some action. And when it appears Ruth doesn't do that, then Naomi comes up with this plan of how she's going to do that. She's going to set up a situation in which she thinks this will guarantee that Boaz and Ruth will get engaged and get married. So what does she instruct them to do? Well, she tells Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. This was an area usually outside of town where they would take the harvest and they would beat out the harvest and throw it in the air. And as they did, the the chaff, the the husk surrounding it, would literally blow away. Now that's what we just sang about in Psalm chapter 1. In the first psalm there, the psalmist is giving us a picture of what it means to be rooted in the Lord and trusting in the Lord and just walking among the wicked and having no sure-footedness in this world. And so he gives that comparison of being rooted in God is like that tree planted by streams of water, but what's the wicked man like? It's like the chaff that the wind drives away. And so what they would do with the harvest, they'd take it outside of the town, usually to a hillside where there was a lot of wind coming through, and they would beat it out, throw it in the air, and that chaff would just be driven away by the wind. And then they'd be left with this pile of grain. And so the picture here is once they had this pile of grain, they would then take it and put it in storage. But between that time when it's just sitting there, they had to protect it. I mean, this was... So much of what they had, so much of what they'd worked for. And we see in the Scripture how God's enemies would come in at times like this and steal the provision of God's people. And so the picture here is Boaz is going to lay there by his grain in order to protect it. You know, the people had celebrated, they had ate, they had drank. He was laying down to rest. And Naomi says to her daughter, now it's at this time that I want you to wash and anoint yourself. Again, we don't have further explanation given. It could be that Naomi's telling Ruth, your time of mourning is over. Ruth would have really physically, uh, been evident physically that she was in a time of mourning after her husband died. And this washing and anointing could have been a way of Naomi saying to Ruth, you need to make sure Boaz knows you're not in mourning anymore. You are available now. Or, it practically could have been, she needed to clean up. <laughs> You know, she'd been working in the fields and, and it could have been she's just saying, you, you need to make yourself a bit more presentable and a bit more attractive to Boaz. And then she gives this instruction, which can seem rather bizarre, does seem rather bizarre to us. She tells Ruth she needs to go to Boaz once he's asleep, uncover his feet, and he will tell you what to do. Now, what exactly is Naomi instructing Ruth to do here? And the answer is, we don't exactly know. But I think we can infer a few things that this is not. Now, there are some who say, well, this is some type of custom that was involved in engagement proposal, but but there's nothing else in the Scripture or outside the Scripture that would suggest this was some type of Hebrew custom for proposing. So I think we can rule that out. Now, there are others who look at this and 
believe that Naomi was asking Ruth to do something possibly immoral here. Something suggestive to put herself in a compromising situation. And I, I kind of lean towards this. Because consider what it is Naomi is asking Ruth to do. And we already know from the text very clearly, it was dangerous for Ruth to go out in the middle of the day to a field. How much more dangerous to go out in the middle of the night outside of town to the threshing floor by herself. So many things could have gone wrong just in her journey out there. But then once she's there, to, to lay down at the feet of Boaz to wait for him to tell you what to do, I mean, Boaz could have read this situation entirely different. That the two of them, had there been attraction between the two, which there probably was, that this could have led to all types of bad situations. And so I don't think Naomi had the best intentions. I think it's possible that Naomi was encouraging Ruth to do something that could have led to an immoral situation in order to secure Boaz as her husband because God's law required that. If they had entered into a physical union, then he was commanded by God's law to marry her. But I don't think that's what happens. And yet we have every reason to believe that Naomi here had questionable intentions. Why? Because it doesn't seem that she's trusting in the Lord. She's trying to get ahead of God. She's struggling to stay still and wait on the Lord. And this is a struggle that we see throughout God's Word. This is a struggle that you and I see in our lives today. I mean, consider the picture there in Exodus 14. God's people have been freed from their slavery in Egypt. They're on their journey to the land of promise. And they come to the shores of the Red Sea where God instructs them to camp out there. And this seems like a rather peculiar thing because they're on their way to the promised land and yet God has put them in a place where they're a bit vulnerable. They, they can't go any farther that way. There's a giant ocean in front of them, a sea. And then that day comes when they look back the other way and they can see in the distance Pharaoh and his army coming after them. And God's people see themselves in a situation where there is death on one side and death on the other side. And they begin to question God and they question Moses. Do you remember what Moses says to them? Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. Moses tells them, The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Or be still. See, God put them in a situation where it was going to be evident that He was their Deliverer, that He was their Redeemer, that He was their Rescuer. But as long as they walked by sight and they didn't trust in Him, they, they wouldn't fully see that. And I think the same thing's true here with Naomi. God has put her and Ruth in a situation where providentially, He's going to work and He's going to act. I mean, again, big picture He's going to preserve the line that will lead to the Messiah, to Jesus our Lord. And in doing this, no, that's, I, I'm trying to think through an illustration and connect it somehow. This would be a situation where you don't need to be still. Sometimes you need to kill the wasp. That'll be next week's sermon. So, for now, here we see the instruction is to be still. Psalm 27, verse 14, God says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. How difficult is it for us just to be still and to wait on the Lord? And I think that's the struggle we see here with Naomi. And yet, that's not the struggle we see with Boaz and Ruth. Because even put in this compromised situation, we see Ruth and Boaz as those who walk by faith and who trust in the Lord. In fact, what we see from them in their walk of faith 
is integrity and purity. And that brings us to the next point in your outline there. How do we walk by faith? We walk in integrity and in purity. And so we see this compromising situation that could have gone very wrong, and yet notice what Ruth and what Boaz do. Now Ruth goes there, she follows Naomi's instructions, and she uncovers Boaz's feet, and she lays there again. What does that mean? Well, we don't fully know, but I think we have some reason to believe it just means what it means. She was going to wake him up. <laughs> because that's exactly what happens. She uncovers his feet, and at some moment, he wakes up. And, and I think we can, we can get our mind around that. I, mean, I don't know how this is for you, but in my house, in my bedroom, in my bed, there's a battle for the blankets every night. And Sandy might tell it a different way, but I'm up here and she's down there, so I'll tell you from my perspective. I wake up at 3 in the morning and there's not a blanket on me, and she is in a seven-layer blanket burrito over there. And you try unwinding that thing in the middle of the night, and, and what is it? It wakes me up. I don't have a cover on me. I wake up. I think what's here is what's here. I don't think there's some reason to think this is illicit or we've got to kind of figure it out or this is code for something else. I think very clearly what Naomi's saying is uncover his feet, lay there, he's going to wake up. And when he does, you just do what he tells you to do. But notice, here's where Ruth diverges from her mother-in-law's instruction. Because she does this, he, he wakes up and, and very naturally he's like, well, who are you? And then he realizes this is Ruth. Notice verse 9 there. She answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, now that should sound familiar. <laughs> because if you go back to Ruth chapter 2, where Boaz is encountering Ruth for the first time, and where he is praising Ruth for how she's come back with her mother-in-law, and how she's providing for her mother-in-law, you, you remember what he says? Chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz says, The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord and God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so in essence, Boaz is praising her and he's praying for her. He's saying, you've entrusted yourself to the Lord. You've brought yourself under His wings. My prayer is that God's going to provide for you. And now he wakes up and there she is. Who is this? This is Ruth. And what does she say? In essence, she says, Boaz, you're the answer to your own prayer. You're the one that God provided for us. You're the Redeemer. And it's in you that I'm going to trust. Her trust is in God, and her trust is that God has given her Boaz as a provision. Now, this is such a beautiful picture for us in the Scripture. And it takes us all the way back to the garden. You think about what happens in the garden with Adam as he names all these creatures, as he sees there's not a, not a helper suitable for him, as God brings this deep sleep to fall upon him, and he wakes up, and who is at his feet? But God's provision for him, Eve, his bride. And now, generations later, here Boaz, a worthy man, he lays down by the provision God has given him in this grain, and as he wakes up, who is at his feet? But God's provision for him, Ruth. And she says to him, I'm trusting God and I'm trusting in you. Spread your wings over me. It harkens us back to what Boaz says. It takes us back to Ezekiel chapter 16 where we see that this practice among God's people, sort of a, an engagement a ritual where the man would actually spread his cloak over the woman who was to be his bride in a symbolic way to say, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. And that's exactly what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. 
Now, some might read this and say, well, that's, that's rather forward. <laughs> I mean, she's a woman, he's a man, and in that culture, is that permissible at all? And, and yet, this is very common in that culture because when someone was a widow and they were seeking redemption from a family member, often it was the widow who would take that initiative. And so there's nothing out of the ordinary, nothing uncommon, and I don't think anything illicit about what takes place here. Because notice Boaz's response in verse 10. Hey, he compliments Ruth. Hey, he praises her. Hey, he tells her that she could have gone after much younger men. There's an implication there that Boaz is probably a bit older than Ruth, that she's still young, and he says, I, I, I praise you, you didn't go after a, a better prospect, a younger man, someone more likely to give you children. Yeah, he talks about the character of Ruth and how everyone sees that she is a worthy woman. And what we can gather from this and learn from this is that even though they're in a compromising situation that they've been brought to, I think, by some bad advice from Naomi, Boaz and Ruth walk in integrity and impurity. And there's a lot for us to learn from that. Because, friends, we find ourselves in compromising situations all the time. And the question is, when we're there, how are we going to walk? Are we going to trust in God? Are we going to walk in integrity and in faith when no one is looking? Are we going to continue to trust in God and, and walk with Christ at times when no one else is around, no one else is going to see it, no one else may ever know what it is we've done? And in the darkness, in those private moments, Will we walk with the Lord in such a way that we too are a worthy man or a worthy woman? I was considering this just recently as I've been preparing for a trip to, to West Africa at the end of next month and part of the training that we'll be doing there is among some pastors and one of the areas I've been asked to speak to these pastors on is on integrity and character, especially among believers and, and among pastors. In preparation for this, I was reading a chapter from a book by one of my former seminary professors from years ago that was entitled A Pastor's Character. This chapter pointed out passages like James 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. And so this author was warning against the deception that can creep into our lives when we start to separate our public life from our private life, when we start to think, well, nobody will ever find out about this. When we start to make excuses and say, well, I know what God's Word says, but I'm the exception. And it wasn't long as I was into this study that I read a headline that, in short, explained how this professor, former professor, has now fallen into an immoral relationship. A relationship that's been going on for well over a decade. A relationship that he was involved in when he was writing these words about be careful in your private life, guard your heart, watch for these temptations. And as I read that, I couldn't help but think, Lord, that, that's so much a temptation for all of us. It's easy for us to come to church in some ways and to put on this outer exterior personality and, and to talk the talk, but, but are we really walking the walk in our private lives day in and day out? Are we guarding our hearts? Are we trusting in God's Word? Or have we, like that picture in James, have we been tempted by what's being lured in front of us? 
And are we swimming ever more close to it? Have we grabbed onto that hook? Are we like the young man lacking sense in Proverbs 7? It goes to the wrong place, the wrong time. He enters into this immoral relationship. And then Solomon says this of it. Little does he know, it will cost him his life. Friends, we are warned from the Scripture to have a life of integrity, a life of consistency. And we will never come to that if we try to grit it out. If we try to dig in deeper. If we try to just convince ourselves, well, I'm not going to do that and I'm going to stop doing that. The only path to integrity and purity and righteousness is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is our trust in Christ on Calvary who was the blessed man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers who truly rooted himself as a tree beside streams of water who yielded fruit that will last for eternity and we will see in glory. And compared to that, this world we're in, these temptations around us, there is a day when God beats it out and it blows away like the chaff. And the question for us in regards to walking by faith is will we trust in Christ? Will we truly submit our lives to Him? We trust in His providence, in His Word. Or, we will or will we continue to trust in ourselves? And that brings us to the final point there in your outline. How do we walk by faith? We walk by faith by trusting in the providence of God. We see in the text here that the morning comes and Boaz instructs Ruth to come in. He's told her to stay till morning again. I don't think there's, there's anything suggestive here. I think Boaz cares more about Ruth than Naomi cares about Ruth. I think this is a matter of protecting her. If she were to go out in the middle of the night, what, what might come to her, what might befall her, all the dangerous situations she would have been in. And so Boaz is protecting her by keeping there till night. He tells her to, to bring that cloak to him. And then notice what he does. He, he fills it with grain. Six measures. We don't know exactly what this equates to, but, but at a minimum, this is probably 60 or 70 pounds of grain, possibly even more than that. And so he puts in her cloak in such a way that she's probably got this thing strapped on her back, and then she, she goes back into the town and then again has this encounter with Naomi. And just consider this contrast for a moment. When, when Naomi comes into town in her return from Moab, what does she say? I left full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She is bitter towards God. She is walking by sight. And yet now Ruth comes into town literally with this mound of provision on her back and what does she say? In essence, I went away empty and I've come back full because she's walking by faith and trusting in the Lord. And now God is providing for her as she trusts in the providence of God. Friends, the simple question for us all today is, are you trusting? Am I trusting? Or are we trusting in God's providence? Because the Scripture is very clear. God is entirely trustworthy. And He is faithful to us even when we are faithless. In fact, that's the message of the Gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That the Gospel tells us that, that, that we all, like Elimelech and, and like Naomi, we have abandoned God. We, we have gone the other way. We have sinned against Him and rebelled. And the Scripture says the wages of this sin is death. We, we don't deserve 
entrance back into the land of promise. We deserve to blow away like the chaff. And yet God is so gracious and so merciful toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have this command from the Lord to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. Hear me, this is not an invitation to consider. This is a command to obey. And in His command, He calls you and He calls us to repentance. Christianity is not one among many uh, faith religions for us just to pick off and consider. This comes from the God of the universe who has commanded you and me today to repent and trust in Him. He is the God of provision. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God that not only redeems this widow out of her hardship, friends, He has redeemed every one of us out of our life of sin and wickedness. And He simply calls us to this. Repent and trust in Him. Turn from your sin and turn to the cross. And there what you find is Christ who on that cross takes the penalty for our sin that He did not deserve, and He offers us in this great, beautiful, wonderful exchange His righteousness that we do not deserve. But it does not come by our works. It doesn't come by our best efforts. It comes by faith. By walking in faith. By stepping out in faith. And by placing our trust and our hope in Christ. We see a picture in front of us in the book of Ruth of two women who are at moments of great crisis in their life. The world has fallen apart for them. This is a hard moment in their lives where they have to consider if they'll trust in God or not. And it's a great thing for us to consider what God does here. But here's the danger. The danger is is that we can think, well, I don't need to decide these things until some great crisis comes in my life. Life's pretty good right now. I'll worry about Christianity. I'll worry about trusting in Christ. I'll worry about that later. Right now, I'm good and I'm just going to enjoy life. But friends, the the call to the Gospel is not just for in in moments of crisis or where you're at the end of your rope or you're in the gutter. That The call to trust in Christ is for every moment of every day. And oh, how desperately we need to be reminded of that. And this is what was on the heart and mind of a young housewife years ago named Annie Hawks. She was not in a moment of crisis. She had not lost a loved one. She had not found out she had cancer. There was no great trial in her life. But in that moment, working in her house that day, she was just overwhelmed with this understanding of our need to trust in Christ. And so she sat down with a pencil and paper and she wrote a poem. I want to read it for you this morning about our need for Christ. She wrote this, I need Thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like Thine can peace afford. I need Thee every hour. Stay Thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when Thou art nigh. I need Thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide. Our life is vain. I need Thee every hour. Teach me Thy will. And Thy rich promises in me fulfill. 
I need Thee every hour, most Holy One. Oh, make me Thine indeed, Thou blessed Son. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. Every hour, I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. Friends, some hymns come from times of great suffering. Some come from times of great joy. And some come from housewives who on an ordinary day realize their desperate need for Christ. You may have woken up this morning and started out the most ordinary day you've ever had. There may be nothing of great crisis or trial in your life today. There may be nothing of great joy or blessing in your life today. It may just be an ordinary Sunday like many others before it. But there's nothing ordinary about your need and my need to trust in Christ. And there's nothing ordinary about the gospel of our Lord who calls us to trust in Him. We need Him. Oh, we need Him. Every hour we need Him. Will you trust in Him today? That is our command and that is our call. If you would, stand and pray with me. Father, this is our need. And yet the the truth of how our sin can so easily blind us is that so often we don't even know our own need. Father, it will take a work of Your Holy Spirit to show us this. And so Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has been blinded by this world and by the enemy has not yet seen the great need they have for Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that You would do a work in them that they might see their need to trust in You. And I pray for all of us this morning. Perhaps, Lord, as we've walked through this passage today, there's some who, who know, Lord, that there are areas of their life, there are dark corners where no one else can see, where, where they are not obeying You. Where they are living a life of the flesh, where they are walking by sight and not by faith. Where Your Word has strictly spoken to them in an area where they are plainly disobeying. Lord, would You empower them through the power of Your Holy Spirit to turn away from their sin and to trust in Christ. Would You help us all, Lord, on ordinary days to trust Christ and to walk with Jesus. And Lord, to do whatever Your Word would command us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.